Greetings one and all, and welcome to The Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii hosted by me, Jeremy Walker. Spurgeon himself, born in 1834, died in 1892, was an English particular Baptist pastor and preacher, renowned in his day and appreciated since by those who love the preaching of Jesus Christ and the holding up of the glory of God. As we work our way through those sermons that Spurgeon preached, printed first of all in the new Park Street pulpit and then in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, day by day we try and post quotes at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter or X, whatever you're calling it now. You can also find out more at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where, as well as signing up to a newsletter for this podcast with each week's featured sermon, you can also find other podcasts of similar quality and character. As I've just hinted, each week, in addition to the daily reading, we feature a particular sermon, which we hope will be a distinct blessing to those who are following along as a representative sample of the ministry of this man of God. This week's featured sermon is 995. It's in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, Uh, as the sheep and their shepherd, a sermon delivered by C.H. Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. And like some of the others at this time, it's undated, and that may reflect the fact, as the letter at the end of this sermon indicates, that Spurgeon's been out of the pulpit for a number of weeks and is using the the material that's been uh, recorded on other occasions for these publications. His text on this occasion is, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So, although Spurgeon for about three months has been too ill to preach and has been kept away from the congregation, he's still producing these weekly written sermons. And here he says Christians are compared to sheep. Not a flattering comparison particularly, but then we do not wish to be flattered, nor would our Lord deem it good to flatter us. We need to face the fact that sheep is what we are. And Spurgeon says that's not a particularly uh, impressive designation, not something that we might naturally choose for ourselves. But the more conscious you are, dear brothers, of your own deficiencies, your lack of stamina, discretion, sagacity, he means wisdom, and all the instincts of self-preservation, the more delighted you will be to see that the Lord accepts you under these conditions and calls you the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we we glory rather in our weakness than in our strength. If we're weak, then we have a strong shepherd. If we're foolish, then he leads us and guides us by his wisdom. There can't be a flock without a shepherd, neither a shepherd truly without a flock. And so, not to you, you great and mighty, who lift your heads high and claim for yourselves honour. Not for you is peace, not to you is rest. But unto you, ye lowly ones, who delight in the valley of humiliation and feel yourselves to be taken down in your own esteem. To you it is that the shepherd becomes dear, and to you will he give to lie down in green pastures beside the still waters. Now Spurgeon's sermon on this occasion after that brief introduction is a very straightforward one. The proprietor of the sheep. It is Christ who calls them my sheep. Then, a little to say about the marks of the sheep, and after that he proposes to talk a while about the privileges of the sheep. I know my sheep, 
They're privileged to be known of Christ. My sheep hear my voice. Who then is the proprietor of the sheep? They're all Christ's. He describes them as my sheep. But how did the saints come to be Christ's? And that's really the burden of his first point. By what means or route did Christ come to call us his sheep? And his first answer is because Christ chose them. Before the worlds were made, out of all the rest of mankind, he selected them. He set his love upon them. Their names were written in his book, and so they became his portion and his heritage. And having so chosen them, we may rest assured he will not lose them now. They're not only his by choice, but his by gift, the gift of the Father to the Son. He often speaks of them in this way, says Spurgeon, as many as you have given me over and over again. And here once more is that eternal donation. They become a token of the Father's love to his only begotten Son, a proof of confidence and a pledge of honour. Then he he says, while Christ stands defending his own then, he will protect them from the lion and the bear that would take the lambs of his flock, not suffering the least of them to perish because they belong to him by his own choice and by his father's gift and so are very precious to him. They're precious also and marked out as his own, furthermore because in addition to his choice and to the gift, Christ has brought, bought them with a price. Think not, says Spurgeon, that Christ will suffer those to perish for whom he died. To me, the very suggestion seems to draw near to the verge of blasphemy. If he has bought me with his blood, I cannot conceive he cares nothing for me, will take no further concern about me, or will suffer my soul to be cast into the pit. If he has suffered in my stead, where is justice gone that the substitute should bear my guilt and I should bear it too? And where is mercy fled, that God should execute twice the punishment for one offence? Nay, beloved, those whom he hath bought with his blood are his, and he will keep them. So underscoring there the, the fact that if so purchased, then we are protected and secure. Then again, we are his, or in due time shall become so, through his capturing them by sacred power. And, and really there's a historical progress here, is there not? chosen, gifted, purchased, and then brought in, captured and called by sacred power. As well by power are we redeemed as by price, for the blood-bought sheep had gone astray even as others. What blind slaves we were, what foolish wanderers we have been. But then Christ has gone out after us, he has brought us back, with mighty grace he has grasped us in his arms and laid us on his shoulder and is this day carrying us home to the great fold above, rejoicing as he bears all our weight and finds us in all we need. My sheep then, says Christ, as he stands in the midst of his disciples, my shepherd, let us one and all reply. All the sheep of Christ who have been redeemed by his power become his by their own willing and cheerful surrender of themselves to him. So Spurgeon, emphasizing divine sovereignty, also wants to recognize that there is a spirit-worked appetite for Christ in the sheep. We would not belong to another if we might, nor would we wish to belong to ourselves if we could, nor I trust we want any part of ourselves to be our own property. In that day when I surrendered my soul, my spirit, I gave him my body, my soul, my spirit. 
I gave him all I had, and all I shall have for time and for eternity. I gave him all my talents, my powers, my faculties, my eyes, my ears, my limbs, my emotions, my judgment, my whole manhood, and all that could come of it, whatever fresh capacity or new capability I may be endowed with. Were I at this good hour to change the note of gladness for one of sadness, it should be to wail out my penitent confession of the times and circumstances in which I have failed to observe the strict and unwavering allegiance I owe to my Lord. So far from regretting, I would fain renew my vows and make them over again. In this, I think, every Christian would join. See how the preacher speaks for the congregation and is really urging us to to enter in to this desire. He says, My sheep, so describing his people as his own, a peculiar or distinctive property. Remember, this is no more our shame that we are sheep, but it is our honour that we are Christ's sheep. To belong to a king carries some measure of distinction, and we are the sheep of the imperial pastures. This is our safety. He will not suffer the enemy to destroy his sheep. This is our sanctity. We're separated, the sheep of the pasture of the Lord's Christ. And this then is the key to our duty. We are his sheep. Then let us live to him and consecrate ourselves to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ is the proprietor of the sheep and we are the property of the good shepherd. That then is his first point. You see how he holds those two things together. The proprietor is Christ. We then are the property. He's drawn out the two sides of that relationship in measure and has begun to emphasize then the the privileges that belong to us. So now he wants us to commune together a while upon the marks of the sheep and in, in keeping with a number of others at his day and, and since, it should be said, and before. He says there are two marks of Christ's sheep not to be found on any other, but found on all his own. They're marked in the ear and in the foot. My sheep hear my voice, and then I know them, and they follow me. So in what way then do the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd? Well, they hear spiritually. It's not in his day that they merely heard with the hearing of the ear and in our day we do not hear his voice physically but we do find that voice speaking to us in the word of God read and preached. The point is then that they hear the voice of the great shepherd with their inward heart. They hear it in their soul. My sheep hear my voice, his counsel, his command, clothed with the authority of his own sacred sovereign utterance. When the gospel comes to you, he says, as Christ's gospel, with demonstration of the Spirit, the invitation is addressed to you by him. You can look upon it in no other light, so you must accept and receive it. O beloved, he pleads, do not ever rest satisfied with hearing the voice of the preacher. We are only Christ's speaking trumpets. There's nothing in us. It is only his speaking through us that can do any good. Oh, children of God, some of you do not always listen to Christ's voice in the preaching. While we comment on the word, you make your comments on us. Our style, or our tone, or even our gesture is enough to absorb, I might rather say, to distract your thoughts. Why look ye so earnestly on us? I beseech you, give less heed to the livery of the servant, and give more care to the message of the master. Listen warily, if you please but judge wisely if you can. 
So he's emphasizing then that you're not just hearing an outward word and you're not just hearing the preachers as a sounding board. You're listening to the servants of the master and it is his voice that you ought to be hearing. And so you should listen warily when you listen to a mere man, but you should judge wisely and consider how much of Christ there is in the sermon, because that's what you should be listening for. I could wish so to preach that you could not see even my little finger, he says. Might I but so preach that you could get a full view of Jesus only. And to hear the voice of Jesus himself drowning out the voice of the preacher, as it were, is the peculiar mark of those who are Christ's peculiar or distinctive people. They hear his voice. It sounds in the ministry. It thrills forth from that book of books. Sometimes it comes in the night watches. His voice may speak to us in the street, silent as to vocal utterance, but like familiar tones that sometimes greet us in our dreams, the voice of Christ is distinctly audible to the soul. So it, you're, you're hearing Christ speak. The word of God is coming to you. The truth of the scriptures is being impressed upon you. The love of Christ is being communicated to you. Spurgeon goes so far as to say that there's such a thing as hearing Christ's voice in the rustling of every leaf upon the tree, the moaning of every wind, the rippling of every wave. He's not saying that, that you, you encounter Christ, as it were, outside the scriptures, that he's some kind of pantheist. What he's saying is that when you know the love of Jesus Christ, you, you hear and see the reality of his care and his power and his wisdom in everything. The billows of his love never cease to swell. And he wants us to hear then the voice of Christ in all these things. Now he says, not only do you hear it spiritually, but you hear it quite distinctly. The Lord meant that his sheep, when they hear his voice, know it so well that they can tell it at once from the voice of strangers. Let some of the very feeblest of God's people sit down under a fluent ministry with all the beauties of rhetoric and let the minister preach up the dignity of human nature and the sufficiency of man's reason to find out the way of righteousness. And you will hear them say, that's very clever, but there's no food for me in it. Bring, however, the best and most instructed, the most learned Christian man, and set him down under a ministry that is very faulty as to the gift of utterance, and incorrect even in grammar. But if it is full of Jesus Christ, I know what he will say. Ah, never mind the man, and never mind the platter on which he be brought the meat. It was food to my soul that I fed upon with a hearty relish. It was marrow and fatness, for I could hear Christ's voice in it. Here's the point then. God's people hear the voice of Christ and it is that which they relish. And where they hear something other than Christ, when the, the, the mere man speaks mere human opinion, then they can distinguish it because they're accustomed to the voice of the shepherd as they hear it in the scriptures and they can therefore determine what is true and what is false. Then again, Christ's sheep hear his voice obediently and this is an important proof of discipleship. It may not be essential in order to prove the relation in which a wife stands to her husband that she should study his tastes, consult his wishes or attend to his comfort. But will she strive? Will she the less strive to please because love, not fear, constrains her? Spurgeon says it, it's it's obvious. You, you, if you if you love someone, 
then you want to do what they desire and what they delight in. It's an unloving spirit that can think anything unessential that the heavenly bridegroom bids you to do. So he asks, do you really suppose that after the choice of Christ has been fixed on you and the love of Christ has been plighted to you, that you may now be as remiss or careless as you like? Nay, rather, might we not expect that a sacred passion, an ardent zeal, a touch of inspiration would stir you up, put you on the alert, make you wake at the faintest sound of his voice or keep you listening to do his will? Here then is the the hearing of the sheep. But there's also the the following of the sheep, because they're marked on their feet as well as their ears. And in this respect, they're gently led, not harshly driven. They follow him as the captain of their salvation, trusting in the power of his arm to clear the way for them. They follow Christ as their example. They desire to be in this world as he was. And they follow him as their commander and lawgiver and prince. Christ's mother said, whatever he says unto you, do it. And it's the children's wise rule, whatever he says to you, do it. If that's what Mary told the uh, the disciples and the, uh, the people at the feast, at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, then it's wise counsel for us still. Blessed then shall they be above many of whom it shall be said, these are they that have not defiled their garments. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Spurgeon bemoans the fact that some of Christ's followers are not very scrupulous, that is, they're not very careful. They love him, and it's not for us to judge them, but we place ourselves among them and share in the censure. Happiest of all, though, happiest of the happy, are those who see the footprint, the print of that foot once pierced with the nail, and put their foot down where he placed it, and then again in the selfsame mark, follow where he trod, till at last they climb to the throne. Here then is the mark. We should be those who are assiduously, carefully, consistently following Christ as commander and lawgiver and prince. Keep close to Christ, urges the preacher. Take care of his little precepts until the end. Now he's rather rushed through that second point, but wants to press on to the third, the privilege of Christ's sheep. And this then is the matter of of communion and drawing near to God. He says it might not look very large, but if we open it, we shall see an amazing degree of blessedness in it. And says, I haven't got the time to tell you all it means, what it means that I know them. Uh, just incidentally, as you, you think about this, you wonder if maybe this is a, a sermon preached. Remember, he's not been in the pulpit for about 12 weeks. If this is a sermon that's been preached uh, on another occasion, perhaps under a greater constraint of time, uh, it seems reasonably short in some respects. But his point still, he wants to get these things across. What is the reverse of this? But one of the most dreadful things that is reserved for the day of judgment. So, Here's a a fairly typical approach. We've seen it once or twice in recent sermons that he kind of flips it. Well, I know them. If that's the privilege, if that's the blessing, what's the contrast? There will be some who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils? And he shall say, verily, verily, I say unto you, I never knew you. And Spurgeon says, you need to measure the height of the privilege by the depth 
of the misery. I never knew you implies a volume of scorn, a stigma of infamy. It means to be cast out, to be thrust away, to be disowned. And by contrast, the Redeemer says, I know them, I know them. How his eyes flash with kindness, says Spurgeon, and how their cheeks burn with gratitude as he thus speaks. Our Saviour then knows us. He, he welcomes us. We are his acquaintances. He will own us. He will testify that we belong to him, that he's chosen us from before the foundation of the world and that he will never forget us. These are the riches of his grace. But, says Spurgeon, you can turn it again, that he knows your person and all about you. And here again, I wonder if we're hearing the personal note Bear in mind, this is the sermon that's been selected by a sick man, perhaps very likely preached by a sick man just before he was laid aside. This is how he speaks. You, with that sick body, that aching head, he knows you, and he knows your soul with all its sensitiveness. That timidity, that anxiety, that constitutional depression, he knows it all. A physician may come to see you and be unable to detect what the disease is that pains or prostrates you. But Christ knows you through and through. All the parts of your nature he understands. And knowing us, he can prescribe for us. That physician imagery, that doctor illustration. He knows your sins, but do not let that dismay you because he's blotted them all out. And he only knows them to forgive them, to cover them with his righteousness. He knows your corruptions and he will deal with you in providence and grace to root them out. He knows your temptations, the challenges that you face, and he can help you better than any others. You might say, I wish the minister knew the temptation. God already knows it. He's, he's working through the, the different aspects of, of compassionate knowledge that the, the shepherd has for his sheep. There's not a word on your tongue, he says, not a wish in your heart, but Christ knows it altogether. He knows how you're assaulted. He knows how you're afflicted. He knows your sincerity. Gives an example. Perhaps you want to join the church and your proposal has been declined. Worth bearing in mind that Spurgeon and his elders were, were ready to say to people who couldn't give a clear testimony of their faith, either we're not sure that you're ready or we need clearer evidences of your conversion. And he says, now it's possible we're wrong. Your proposal's been declined because you could not give satisfactory testimony. He says, if you're sincere, he knows it. He knows, moreover, what your anxiety is. He knows what's bitter to you. And he, your secret is with him. He knows you. He knows what you've been trying to do. That secret gift, the offering dropped when none could see it. He knows it. He knows that you love him. What comfort he's bringing out. Going over the, the whole range here of the experience of some of God's people, not just his own, but out of his own, assuring others that there's this blessing too. And then he says, there's mutual knowledge. I know them, but they also know me because they hear my voice and recognize it. Here's mutual confession. Christ speaks, else there'd be no voice. They hear, else the voice were not useful. I know them, he says. That is, his thoughts go toward them. They follow me. Their thoughts go towards him. He leads, or they couldn't follow. They follow, 
whenever he leads. There's this uh, counterpart one to the other. There's this mutuality of relationship and of knowledge. Does he speak? They hear. Does he go? They follow. How I wish, says our preacher, we were all sheep. Do we long that when we hear the word of God preached? Do our hearts thrill to the simplicity and spirituality of a sermon like this? How my soul longs that we may, many of us who are not of his fold, be brought in. There's the pleading now. And and again, here's the typical, uh, sometimes at the end, sometimes all through, but but almost invariably, if he's been concentrating on the, the, the privileges of the saints, he cannot and will not close without pressing home the blessings that Christ holds out to all who call upon him. The Lord give you his grace, he says, and make you his own, comfort you and make you to follow him. And if you're his, then show it. These dear brothers and sisters here at this time desire to confess Christ in your presence, probably pointing to some who are about to be baptized. If they're doing right and you're not doing as they do, then you're doing wrong. If it's the duty of one, it's the duty of all. And if one Christian may neglect making a profession, all may do so. And then there'd be no visible church whatsoever and the visible ordinances must die out. So Spurgeon's saying that if you've heard his voice in your soul, then own it before the congregation. If you know him, own him. For he has said, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. It's a relatively brief, relatively straightforward sermon. You may have listened to these snippets of it. You may have read it yourself and thought, mm, well, that's that's nothing special. Well, no, not by human standards, but it's everything special by the divine standard for it speaks to us of Jesus Christ and the privilege of hearing his voice and following him. Perhaps it's a real comfort to us, especially if we're preachers or if we're plagued and pained with affection in, with afflictions and diseases. We can go into the pulpit perhaps and our minds are fogged and our bodies are weak and our tongues feel slow and we might think, well, what good can there be in anything that I can speak? Here's a reminder that we're not called upon to be some kind of theological rocket scientist. We're called to be preachers of Jesus Christ. You may feel very foolish and very frail in yourself, but can you speak a word for the Lord Christ? Can you tell of the shepherd who's come for his sheep, who's chosen them, who's been given them, who's purchased them, who calls them, who brings them to himself, those who know themselves to belong to him? those who hear his voice in the depths of their soul as the word is preached, as they go through life, they're conscious of and confident in the speech of Jesus Christ toward them. And then they hear his voice and hearing they follow. They are led, not driven. They take him as their example. They take Christ as their commander and they are known then by him, not cast out, not thrust away, not disowned in the day of wrath but beloved of Christ, owned through time and for eternity. He knows us through and through, and we know him. There's a response in our souls. What a comfort then to think that if, like Spurgeon, we may be weak and frail, 
and barely able to do more than stutter out simplicities concerning Jesus Christ, that these are the very things that the Lord will delight to hear and we perhaps even will delight to bless. It's not always and perhaps not even often when we think we're at our finest that the Lord smiles upon our labours, but rather in our weakness he shows himself strong. He reveals himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. Remember, even if you read this little letter that Spurgeon puts in at the end, uh, read at the tabernacle on the Lord's Day of the 18th of June, he was at the closing day of his 37th year. He celebrated his birthday, battered and bruised in his flesh, finding himself nevertheless the pastor of a beloved flock who have borne the test of 12 Sabbaths of their minister's absence and the severer test of more than 17 years of the same ministry and are now exhibiting more love to him than ever. He's giving thanks that the congregation turned to prayer for his restoration and he's anticipating being restored. He's still at work, still laboring, still praying. Weak, yes, but the improvement in strength was notable. And so with, with that confidence of himself as the sheep of the great shepherd, his consciousness that he is the under-shepherd of the sheep there at the tabernacle. These things come to the fore. What he's talking about in this sermon is not theory to this man. It's happy, happy reality. May it prove the same to each one of us and become a blessing to multitudes more besides. Well, we've come to the end of this particular podcast. Hope you'll join us again next week. We're coming up to 999 the withering work of the Spirit. And uh, we're also going to do, God willing, a lively reading of Sermon 1000, uh, Spurgeon's uh, 1000th printed sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, uh, Bread from Heaven. I trust that will be a particular blessing to you as well if you're able to to join us for that. And God willing, uh, you'll come again and hear more and join us to learn more not so much from the heart of Spurgeon, but of the glory of Jesus Christ.